0: Hello and welcome to Tell Me About Your D&D Character, a podcast where people get a chance to talk about their characters from different role-playing games. I'm your host, Jeremy, and today my guest is Herbert Peppard, the creator and um, coordinator of the latest Dungeons & Distancing adventure, Goblins of Zarth. He probably knows a lot more about role-playing games than I do, which if you listen to Dice and DMs, you know that's pretty impressive. Uh, And... He loves to talk. This is a really great episode. I had a really good time. Just everything he was saying was sparking different ideas in my brain. So let's get into the episode and um, enjoy. Okay, how's um how things been going since Goblin of Zarth? kind
1: of wrapped uh, up uh i have been uh two things two things have been happening the first thing is that i've been suffering from uh just fatigue because yes. <laughs> it was it was intensity intensities uh partially my own fault just uh, you know uh partially my own fault for like over committing to a whole bunch of stuff and partially the fault of fate in the world at large for just throwing a bunch of other random stuff in the road in the process to getting that done. So since then I've just been um, flat out getting the publication finished and I'm in the last sort of few days of that now, which is exciting. Uh, It's sort of, I decided to push it back one week just so I could top and tail it a little more. Um, But I am at the point now where uh, my life is sort of running out of time for this project and I need to get onto real life maintenance. So. what'll happen is we'll probably just, I'll, I'll get to this Friday and release the, the version that it is at that time. Cause you know, you can keep working on something indefinitely, but there's, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it'll just, it'll just eat up your, 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 your life and your time and your mind. Um,
0: Isn't there a well, quote, um, great works of art are never finished. They're just abandoned.
1: Yes, but I don't want to be that guy who keeps going into the gallery. Once the painting's up and touching it up, there's <laughs> You
0: don't
1: want to be George Lucas in this situation. Um, No, no. I'd rather like set a foundation and then move on to other things. Um, There is going to be a gap between when the digital copy is up and when the um, physical copy is out. So I may sort of take some time to sort of fix it up between then and when. But uh, that would just be like minor changes. And I would definitely update everyone who did a PDF purchase with the, the final version if that was the case essentially the content's the same though the content's the same it's just like a couple of little tweaks yeah
0: well, that's kind of the benefit of the digital program that you can say okay this is version 2.0 you may have had 2.1 yeah. this is the errata then you can have it as a living document rather than that's the final product i guess it's it's, it's the best it's going to be
1: i love errata's um as it is i am a victim of plastic crack i have become very used to erratas in the modern age um mm-hmm. where they sort of take their rule systems and just errata them and errata them um sometimes on first day releases which is is crazy i've become used to them anyway but uh yeah the main thing is that there's a product there something that you can use and reference and have fun with
0: it's more like downloadable content it's just the patch that yeah
1: yeah, I, I I I get so excited with things when I'm making something or making a world. And every time I'm like, ah, oh, it's digital. I can just give this thing away and that thing away. And you can have this new extra extra level added to, to this, this thing that I'm creating. And I think, um I, I don't know, I have other friends of mine who are like, no, no, curb your enthusiasm, Herbert. You need to, you know, release stuff to people only in dribs and drabs. But I think there is definitely merit to giving a certain amount of, like, DLC, as you say, yeah, to things that you create,
0: and, and it can be a taster. It can be, this is a a class I've created for this upcoming adventure I've written. So here's the class
1: mm-hmm.
0: right now. Here's the adventure yeah. in a couple of months.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not a bad, not a bad way to go about it, really. I mean, this is this is my first experience uh, creating a module for sale. So I've written, I've been writing and running role-playing games for conventions since i was 14 years old so that's about 30 um is it no 20 20 28 years now pretty much Mm -hmm. um mostly in sydney basically when i first came to sydney australia i was um uh, I'd been playing in Adelaide probably since I was about nine. Started with the old Ian Jackson, Stephen Livingston, sort of fighting fantasy books, mm-hmm. and then progressed onto like the Titan world. So taking the same system and making it like slightly more, or uh, evolving it to the next level. And then a little bit of Shadowrun, oh, Shadowrun, Cyberpunk when I was. Yep. um They're similar.
0: It's, uh, it's same, the same feel yeah. with magic. Yeah.
1: But with magic, you know, I mean magic technology, it's it's all the same thing really. Mm-hmm. Um and then then I, I, I came to find the role-playing convention communities in Sydney. Um and I went to my first convention and uh I was acutely aware of how much it cost my parents, which was yes. we, we had very little money at the time, and it was like, you know, five bucks per session to play in a game. Uh which in the you know early nineties was still like reasonable amount of money at least for us and I was like oh that's not so good but at the pub afterwards like 14 year old me hanging out with like these older like university students and post-grad people and you know just aged Mm -hmm. institutional members of this whole community they were like oh well there's a thing you can do which is every for every game that you run at a convention you can you can play a game for free and I'm like sold and that was in the very (laughs) next convention. I was I I'd, I'd submitted a blurb and I was running games and I never looked back at that point. Wow. <laughs> so yeah, and like the first con I ran, like I maybe we had I had half of my sessions uh, mm-hmm. booked out to play with people who were, who were playing them, and you know then I got to spend the other half of the convention playing games, which was great. And then it kind of backfired on me because by the time I got to the like two years in, um all of my games were full and I had no time to play any other session. (laughs) Uh, Occasionally we had like a team drop out and I'd like get in at last minute. And the only, um, I guess the, the biggest, the biggest regret I have in that instance is that there are just some friends of mine who are amazing, amazing games writers who I spent a lot of time like hanging out with and were my peers uh, or at least people I looked up to and respected. But, I, I never got to play any of their games during that heyday of conventions. And uh, some of them have since passed away. And I was talking to a friend of mine about this uh, as well, one of our regular players from Tabletop Dynasties. And they were just saying, yeah, it's a shame I never got to play in any of um, our friend James's games because he, he was, they were always booked out. <laughs> you could just never, never get in. Hmm.
0: Isn't this the, the forever DM problem? that uh, yeah you have all these ideas and you're running the game all the time and with all the prep time you don't always have chance to, to play um play the characters you want
1: it's true but um sometimes there's a there's a curse with games masters i think when they're playing games i think there's an art to rolling back who you are and your ego and your obsession to sort of like micromanage your environment and your players uh for me uh it's a I do the ADHD trick where anytime I play a game, I try and draw. And if I'm drawing, then I'm not like trying to micromanage the other players. I'm willing to let them sort of sit there and, you know, fall into all the pitfalls and um, kinds of other bits and pieces. You know, what what do you do, right? You don't want to, you don't want to, you don't want to be the only person playing the game. And I'm not going to pretend that I have not at some points in my gaming life fallen into the trap of, uh, Trying, like, just taking over the game and using all of the other players as auxiliaries to my fucking master plan.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so, some, that's just being a leader.
1: Oh, yeah. But there's being a leader and then there's being the main character. Yeah. I mean, a role playing game is ostensibly a shared narrative building experience where yeah. a group of people come together and, and and make something and make something cool. And I it's. I guess you could liken it best to like your Doc Savage, like your classic like 1920s or um, 1930s sort of like pulp fiction where post-war, pre-World War War II, where concepts of eugenics were still, you know, very much in fad. Uh, And you would have like one person and Biggles, like uh, Biggles was very much the same. where You'd have one character who was amazing, At everything and they were just the best in the world at all things and then you would have a group of support characters who were the best in the world at their own thing but still not quite as good as biggles or doc savage at those things um and that that is definitely a role that i've fallen into i think once in a campaign and that's i think gm syndrome um that's a
0: good word for it i'm gonna stick with that one the gm syndrome of Directing the other players, and when you're at the t- when you're not behind the screen,
1: mm-hmm. yeah, um, yeah, but it, it takes it, and it takes time, and it's something to that you need to sort of step back from, yeah. you need to step out of of it, and step away from the that role as the games master, and just jump into the player and jump into the character. But I feel that that also allows you to kind of mature, because you can you like just take the time to see the character and really be seeing the world through the filter of that character and really be stepping away from like this omnipresent omniscient like personality in the game
0: you're not looking at the matrix anymore you're not seeing the code as the world the game around you you're um you're just enjoying the experience
1: yeah it's sitting back and just really um looking at the world through the filter of the character sheet really understanding what it is that each of those points on the character sheet mean like what does it mean to have this much dexterity because like you know your metagame is right they'll like come into it and they're like oh i'm playing a barbarian i don't need like a high amount of charisma or intelligence because like i can i can do that myself i can provide the charisma and and the intelligence myself um so i don't need to to be, to be doing that and i think that's again just sort of jumping back taking a step back playing playing that character enjoying that character enjoying the world uh cool. and enjoying the fact that you know you're you're limited you're limiting yourself um and limiting your worldview and limiting your perspective um it helps you enjoy the game more i think and just really appreciate yeah those environments that the, the games master is bringing to play. Because that's the joy of not running a game is that it's not your world. You don't have absolute control. You're giving yourself over to somebody else's vision, which is awesome yeah. and what's amazing about it.
0: And sometimes you do get to be that hero. You get to, to lead the charge against something or just be there when something massive for the game happens.
1: Mm, 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 mm. But it always falls into... If you're astute, it's always falling into your character and your character's narrative and i find that if you're really playing character and really playing two character then the dice they like you (laughs) and if they don't like you they don't like you for really cool narrative reasons that are very much in tune with where your character's going and i've had like characters who have just tried like really pushed too far or flown too high and been very ballsy and out there characters because that was the nature of the character um and in so many occasions, the dice would just be un- unnaturally amazing for them. And all the players would be like, it's, it's crazy, it's uncanny. And I'm not a person who's dice superstitious. I'll just use whatever dice are available. Um, but then that same character like, died because they just put themselves out into the world in exactly the same way. They behaved exactly the same way they always did with this unerring confidence. Um, and they had just like a series of four dice rolls, like, fail and they plummeted you know into a bottomless chasm and that that's it it's done
0: and so, it's sometimes up that up. happens <laughs> it's like and that's when you're that confident it's like yes occasionally you'll be overconfident uh-huh, and, uh, uh-huh, and bad things uh-huh. will happen i've got a, a similar case i've got a bard in one campaign who's um not the traditional horny bard stereotype mm. but he's he's a little bit on that on that level uh, except mm. the dice rolls, whenever he's trying to seduce or convince anyone, are always really, really poor. Uh, but that doesn't stop him trying because I assume off-screen it works every time. Mm. So that's his his character. And it's like when it doesn't work, well, well, we're in a mess again. I'm going to run. You guys have good luck. Bye. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, Maybe because it makes it more scary. The desperation.
0: Yeah, they do. They usually do with him. They they can it comes off him in waves. Are there any characters uh, that really have struck a chord with you like that? The ones that um, the dice have, that you've really leaned into and the dice have favoured in particular, and they've had some amazing moments because of that, besides the, the confident guy who fell off the cliff?
1: Besides the confident guy who fell off the cliff? Yes. Um, I mean, we've all got our first characters that you kind of loved. It wouldn't have been the first character that you've played, but there's kind of a point that you come to in a campaign, in a long campaign, where you sort of take on the role of a character and you just like expand it, kind of, and, and you have a lot of luck and. You kind of put a lot of yourself into, or not even, not necessarily a lot of yourself into, but perhaps a lot of who you wanted to be at that point in your life. You're like, yeah. I'm trying out this personality, and that for, for me, I had a character. Um, it was in Shadowrun. I had a friend of mine uh, who was amazing Shadowrun Games Master, a guy called um, Rico. It was a very, very cool friend of mine for a very long time, from when I was younger, and we would. Uh, We would hang out late at night um, on various stimulants and just play and dream up shatteron until the wee hours of the morning. Um, Lots of coffee and, you know, Jolt, I believe, was big at the time. Jolt Cola had just come out. Um, And you know, we get to a point in the game especially in a game with a higher level of organization you've gone to a higher level and you've got access to more resources and more things and and maybe you don't have uh, you've got a little bit more time in your life that sort of time money equation you're sort of at the point where you're uh, you have enough time to sort of like really delve into the character and the world and the micromanagement of things, and so you do all the things that really a good games master will be like ah oh, we're going to summarize all of your accounting and all of the management of your base or your castle and you know all of your resource management and stuff like that. But we 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 were kind of like very much into the world of like having this undersea base and all kinds of crazy technology. Um, and then developing our own technology and abbreviating the actual core rules of what was Shadowrun second edition at the time into being a bit more dynamic because I think White Wolf was very much in fad in the in the 90s at that point as well as like uh, mid to late 90s by the time I was in that rabbit hole Um, and the uh, so we were using like a D10 system to sort of run Shadowrun. on. Anyway, I had a had a character, and it was like uh, very cool. I made all these contraptions. I mean, I thought it was very cool. You know, that's that's what, what, what you do right when you play that character. And they were like a jewel thief, and they were based on your uh, danger diabolic, slash Lupin the Third sort of archetype of um, jewel thief, very sort of laissez faire, happy or lucky kind of guy. Uh, and the dice, the dice agreed with them a lot, but most of the time, like half of the time it was the dice and the other half of the time it was just me being meticulous about my planning and how I was going to like approach any situation that I put myself into because you get to a point with some games masters where they're, they're looking to kill you. Yeah, <laughs> they're, they're trying to get you, uh, especially in a Shadowrun or like a Star Wars world or even any fantasy game where you're set in the same city. Uh, eventually, like you make enemies and it's it's all good and well to be like the party that goes up and finds the evil warlock in the lair and meticulously plans how to take down that warlock and like totally wrecks their day. Right. It's another thing to be that party that the evil warlock's son and five friends have found like later in life and have spent the last six months tracking down and meticulously studied all of their strengths and weaknesses and are now going to gank the hell out of that party. So, you know, there, there's, 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 there's two sides of things. Um, and It's all good and well to hit people yourself, but to be the one being hit, that's, that's when you know if a party is going to survive and if a player really is able to sort of hold up um and has the correct planning
0: that's really when you learn whether the party has developed as a team or whether it's individuals working at next to each other
1: yeah and look i know that a lot of people particularly in the modern age they don't play games where that's a situation but i still like playing games where realistic cause and effect is is a big part of the game itself um I know with a lot of um, there are a lot of games where which people play, which are just, oh, we want to play a game, and everyone wants to enjoy a narrative, and everyone wants to, you know, have their, their Buffy moments and talk or long-winded, uh, have their, their nice monologues and talk about stuff and go through their emotional things, and I think that's cool, and I definitely think there's a place for things, but I think that stuff has a lot more weight when there's a the, the chance that you're gonna fail. Yeah, uh, because so much of, especially fifth edition Dungeons and Dragons, and so many of the encounters that I've run into, uh, that exist in conventional Dungeons and Dragons in fifth edition, or um, they, they're they're built and balanced, and it's like this is this is a fantasy world. This is this is this is, a, this is a, a full of crazy and insane things, um, and if you're gonna come across them and then you can't use them or you can't interface with them, or you're going to come across something and then you immediately run at it because you have this false confidence that you think an encounter is balanced in your favor. Mm -hmm. Um, People people shouldn't have that level of confidence, and if they do, it's very false, and it's (laughs) completely unfounded. People should be afraid. I I never found this um, more acutely than I did when I started to explore Starfinder uh where yeah because i was i was like ah oh, here's bam book like 600 400 page like rule book and it's like oh equipment list look at all this equipment that people have access to and then um after like starting to run games like coming to this little sub clause uh, at the bottom of it saying oh really no person like players should only have access i've got a list of like you know 60 pistols or something in the book and PCs should really only have access to four of those pistols at a time based on their level. And that's how they interact with the world. Um, and it's this really artificial construct of levels that sort of comes into play where this dynamic exists, where I can be... like, And this is, this is a literal mathematical equation where, narratively speaking... Um, I could, as a first level character, pick up the most powerful weapon in the universe uh, that's in the same equipment list. And I could walk up to a creature and point it at them, point blank, uh, and and miss and do no damage. And it actually being impossible for me to hit them with that on the dice, like mechanically speaking, um, which is more... Much, much, and this is obviously where good games masters come into balancing everything out. But it's just that that level of mechanics, like it's particularly mechanically heavy game like Starfinder, Pathfinder, um, where they really want to define every aspect, and it's such a big part of the game. Uh, but it's just it's just so absurd those level systems. Where why why is it that in a technologically advanced race that has access to very powerful weapons. Why is it they make those weapons so impossible to use? Because they really should be trying to equip their frontline soldiers with as many of these weapons as possible. And they want to give them through as, as little training as possible to be able to use these weapons. If those soldiers can't go out and point those weapons at something and have them hit, it's it's kind of ridiculous. Um, I did some extensive modifications in that game. I think I only ran like six six versions of it. But I, almost, I pretty much threw the AC system and the proficiency system out the window. Uh, when I encountered Starfinder and just changed it so that, yes, you could have, have access to everything. Yes, there was a chance that people could hit everything with every weapon. Because I really like the setting, and I really like the diversity, and I really like... There's, there's so much about Starfinder that I really like. What I dislike about it is just that 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 one core mechanic where oh. it, it feels like an artificial thing. I actually had a friend of mine, Chris Tam, who does a, a blog called Elf Elfmaids and Octopi, who summarized it really, really well when they wrote uh, a one-shot or, like, a little system that's available where people in the modern-day world uh, jump through a portal into a Dungeons & Dragons world. And they are, like, this SWAT team, or and, and they're going through a dungeon, and they're not even level one characters, like, level zero characters that they're playing. Uh, and they're like coming up against these crazy monsters with crazy abilities, um, and then what happens is due to the and that and everybody in our world is a level zero character essentially. And then what happens is by being in this world, there are these weird peripheral magical effects that start to change you, and they start to realize that their guns are actually kind of useless by comparison to these items and equipment that they're picking up in this dungeon and then they start to be infused with this infected with this magical energy that allowed them to start going up in levels and become superhuman uh which is crazy in my mind really it's like fifth. yeah it, it's it's cool they're great if you ever have a chance they're one of the most prolific table writers you'll ever come across if you ever got it, addicted to the old ice or ice system which is like the old rollmaster stuff um which is a very table heavy system uh Chris Tam, who runs Elf, Maze, and Octopi, they have an amazing collection of tables on there for some of the most absurd and awesome things. Uh, Planet Psycon is one of their better settings. It's like a psychedelic, post-apocalyptic future world, uh, which is very, very fun to play in. Um, And they have some awesome tables for character generation where you become all kinds of weird mutants. Um, But uh, yeah... Sorry, I lost my train of thought. I was just just that's all right. Just feeling. <laughs> I was just going
0: to ask. Um, well, do you find that you tweak and modify game systems as you play them? I mean, you've been playing for I think you said twenty eight years on convention floors and in home home games and things like that. But when you're running a game, I mean, you just said when you started with Starfinder, you started pulling pulling bits out and going, well, I can tweak this, I can change this to make it more the story mm-hmm. I want to tell. Do you find you do that with most systems? Or is it just, um, is there one that you really keep coming back to and going, this works for me, this is the way I like to play?
1: Um, I think that is something that I have struggled with for many, many years. And I don't I think, think it's a struggle. I, have... I think
0: it's something that all game masters do because you want to tell a story yeah. a certain way. And sometimes the rule. I mean, the rules are guidelines. At the end of the day, and sometimes they get in the way of what makes a better story. So you, uh, I don't, I don't yeah. think it's something you should be ashamed of or try to stop. I think it's something that everyone should do.
1: Yeah. So i I feel I feel I, I have two two things that sort of always resonate with me about this. The first thing is that yes, I have a particular style of running a game, and I want the. Mechanics to flow as easily as possible, and also to make sense, um, oh. so the first thing is yes i w- I want a game to flow, um, and I try and sort of hit the points in the system that are going to make that game flow, so when i 'm running for players, um, I want to try and sort of use or control the mechanics so that they're making dice rolls while the adrenaline is high. Because there's nothing worse than being like, we're involved in a game and things are exciting and things are happening and then all of a sudden we hit combat and everything slows to a crawl and people are no longer as excited or as interested in the game. And of course, that level of interest will vary from player to player. But in that instance, you try and sort of like wrap it up so the narrative is going so that people are invested, so that they're um, pushing and aware. And of course, the more intrinsically aware of the system a player is, the more fluid environments like that will be. But at the same time, as a games master, you you do end up having to abbreviate a given system to work with the flow of the narrative at any given point. On the other side of that is my um, my desire to have realism and realistic cause and effect in the game. And there is a point when a game stops becoming like, stops becoming a defined reality that you're existing in and starts becoming like he he said, she said cops and robbers, right? Yeah. Where there is no governing system. And I believe that systems of probability are the important set of checks and balance checks and balances that give you the sense of reality that give you a risk that give you the the sense of potential failure and if you don't have that then then what is it you're doing what is the game at all why are you playing the game if you're playing to hang out with your friends there are and and that's cool lots of people do that they play a game to hang out with their friends and have a communal storytelling exercise and rules be damned you know um and i've known players who who will, will cheat to that purpose because they feel like the that narrative will go better in one way, so they'll pick and choose what roles they succeed and fail at in the in the course of the game. Um, and they're always very funny people to see, and I try and catch them out by just throwing things at them where they think, oh, it's going to be acceptable to fail this role, and then they go for it, and then they don't realize that actually that's probably the worst thing they could have done. <laughs> but
0: that's um, a good story. but.
1: It makes a good story, and that's what. That's what. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I'm 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 very much on the fence, and I do enjoy like games, like modern games that are moving more to a narrative based mechanic. Um, like I have played some games like Gray Cells um, uh, by Bogdan Continescu and uh, Relics, uh, even like Blades in the Dark, uh, which start in the course of their games they they develop a narrative economy where the instead of having dice that you can roll you have narrative points that you can draw on to to have control of reality so it sort of takes takes the idea of meta gaming and being, brings it into the mechanic of the game where i'm no longer rolling like coming up with an idea and rolling dice to reinforce and to, to determine things i'm now um, using like uh, a, an economy that's built into my character sheet usually um, that allows me to jump in and have free control of reality in the game without any real limits. And if you're a very clever player, and sometimes I am, sometimes I'm not when I'm playing those games, uh, then you can, you can very carefully manipulate the world around you. Uh, to be the person who always succeeds and fails. I think that they do use a certain degree, a certain amount of dice, but I know that some of those modern gaming systems don't use dice at all. And uh, I know that there are older systems that were very similar, but it does remind me... I know It's, it's, it's strange. It's an interesting world that we're in at the moment in gaming, which is... What even is your character? When a character changes definition, in Relics particularly, um, the, the characters are constantly forgetting what it is they can and can't do um, and will constantly remembering that actually, you know, a thousand years ago, I was this person who had all these amazing skills and now they're coming back into my mind and I can use them directly in the game right now. Um, and they try and make... The checks and balances they try and put into that system is that those narrative tools... Are actually defined by other members of the party mm-hmm. so you know uh, but it's still yeah. something that sort of mm, it's interesting
0: yeah i can see it. it's it really is um we're no longer confined by the standard this is how a game operates that this is how a game is set up you have to have armor class you have to have damage output you have to have all these things you can we really do have a a new frontier of um of telling stories in a
1: game setting. Yeah. It's moved into conflicts. Uh, and in especially in a narrative mm. economy, in a game where we're talking about narrative, narrative economy, um, you're working to build narrative. And the ultimate currency in narrative is conflict. It's about choosing where it is you have that conflict. Um, and in some ways, that builds a, a cool game where you're telling stories. And in other ways, it builds kind of an artificial environment uh, where those stories become uh, very Munchausen-esque. Yes. uh, Which is cool in its own right. And again, it all depends on the players playing. It all depends on the game's masters. And it all depends on what people want to get out of it. So uh, in order to sort of like combat this balance to a degree in my Goblins of Zarth module that's gonna be released in in a couple of well on, on very soon. Very soon. Very soon. Any day now. Any day now. Um it's probably it's definitely already available for pre-order. So you know if you haven't yet go to the Quest Suppliers website and get yourself a copy of the Goblins of Zarth module. If it's not available, if it will be available, it will be released to you shortly if it's not already yes. out. Um, but in order to sort of balance that sort of sense of involvement and I've created I've I've tried to make a, a Wi well, I've made well, you know you do your best as a games master well. you try and make a DD or a compatible fifth edition game. Yeah. Um and but in order to make it accessible I've also added in a DD abridged oh. uh Version of the game, which is a very simplified, means that you've got all the characters, very simplified character sheets, um, and even somebody who's never played the game before, you can explain to them how to use that sheet in like sixty seconds.
0: So it's kind of like a starter kit that um, they put out before. You it's
1: could give less of a go... starter kit, less of a starter kit, and more of a beer and pretzels version of the game, <laughs> <laughs> and it, it does it. require yeah. the. Game yeah it does require the games master to have like an amount of knowledge of how a role playing games worked, but even like a first time a first time games master probably not first time player coming into the abridged mechanic of the game um could be like oh cool i I can run this this is, this is easy for me to run, and I could run it for friends of mine who have never played a role playing game before in their life, you know, and they'd be able to sit down and Play it, like start playing it in you know less than an hour, yeah. you know in the same way that you set up for a board game, well, let's set up for a board game, we're gonna play a board game, whoop, bam, done, let's get into it, and then we get drunk and have some antics and mm. uh if we want to take it on beyond this first thing, we can take it on beyond this first thing, but uh, we're having a lot of fun so i I mean I just I guess when I was making it, I was acutely aware of the fact that there are a lot of different needs that players have mm. and some players just want to screw around and have fun and have never played a role-playing game before and will never be anything more than themselves in a skin suit in okay. that world um and then there are players who want to get fully immersed and take risks as those characters uh, in that world and really have a more defined environment i mean as far as yeah. fifth edition dungeons and dragons defines an environment because if you look at the all the 5th edition Dungeons & Dragons rules, one of the first things that they say is, hey, these rules can be thrown out the window. We are yeah. going for a more narrative structure. We are no longer 3.5. We are no longer 4th edition. We no are now... Massive
0: tables with everything decided by the roll of dice.
1: Yeah. Now, don't get me wrong. I love massive tables. Having, yeah. like, Rollmaster being my first real role-playing game to have picked up in the 1980s. Um, I, I just just having a critical damage table for you know every weapon known to man, kind, person kind, humanoid kind. Uh it, it's 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 amazing. There's nothing like it. And I, I love I think my favorite the first, my favorite game, one of my fav- most more, most favorite games uh when I was growing up was Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay First Edition, um, which has a very brutal critical hit system that is table-based and I, I love it and i think it's awesome and i love just like it, it's it's like a choose your own adventure of falling <laughs> pain. slowly to bloody pieces of pain yeah i love the choose your own adventure of pain it's so good yeah so perfectly said um yeah it's it's a good time uh, uh,
0: i'll have to check and see if the new edition has that
1: uh, I don't know. I don't know. I haven't I've, I've I've had a look at it. I think the core mechanics of the fourth edition of uh Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay are pretty cool and they clean up a lot of stuff. Um but there I, I hear that Shadow of the Dragon Lord does a better job of okay. reinventing what the original sort of the original intent, the original feel of Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay first edition was. That sort of very Fairy tale, that grim, dark fairy tale world. Yeah. That, that's how I always saw it, where, you know, witches and goblins and fairies were the things that stole your babies and swapped your souls. And it was less about the defined mechanics in the game and more about the fact that, you know, anything could happen. The world was legitimately a crazy, magical place that wasn't and should never have been completely defined by. A rules mechanic and i think it's cool that like so much of it was i mean jesus when i okay so you gotta understand and i've said this to 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 your um uh to to your associate ben before yeah. that when we dungeons and dragons is not my native language uh it's something <laughs> that i came to maybe about five years ago now it's always been around and it's always in the background. But like I said, I came in through fighting fantasy games and the choose the the you know fighting fantasy adventure books and then yeah. the world of titan role playing game. Uh and then the next game that I played was um uh, rollmaster and then cyberpunk and mm-hmm. then Shadowrun and then Star Wars Palladium. Yep. Uh so Palladium Rifts and Palladium Robotech, uh TMNT uh and ninjas and super spies and then a bunch of other random systems through like running games role-playing conventions but by the time like i was at conventions it was like the dawn of world of darkness and that really revolutionized like the way that games were played like apart from where like if you look at the difference between where world of darkness started And then where World of Darkness ended up, like when it started, it was like if you ran the game out of one book, the core like Vampire the Masquerade book, or you picked up like The Hunter's book, like it was it was a pretty cool, basic, mechanically speaking, basic game that was much more fluid than any other game on the market. And that's really, that's really what changed things. That's really what changed the world. Um, is the way they reinterpreted attributes in the system. And as soon as that came out, like, and we were at conventions running these games, and I was like looking at people playing Dungeons and Dragons. Like, I sat down and I played like a like the second or a three point five D and D, and I was like, "What the what the hell is this?" <laughs> and this is from someone who played Rolemaster, yeah. Shadowrun, and and Rift, right? And then picking up like wow. I found, and this is this is a big statement, but I found that. Rifts and the Palladium system was more dynamic than Dungeons and Dragons, like 3.5. Yeah. Um, for, for
0: all the people getting upset about Rifts, Rifts was very, you kind of throw, it was very, I guess, like you're saying, fluid, that it did need to deal with fluid. all these completely out there situations that you wouldn't really expect. So the, the base rules had to be simple. They had to yes. work every single time. Yeah. So you could do anything, and that. that was kind of the point of it. Whereas Dungeons and Dragons was, you can do these things.
1: Yes, it was. It was very. It felt like you were very much in a box, and it very much felt like, like especially after playing all these other systems, coming back to D and D for the first time when I was like younger was like falling, like playing a very, very boring board game. Okay. And especially when you had like Diablo, like it just yeah. come out on the PS One, right? And you're like. Cool. Well, this is exactly what you guys are doing in your dungeon, uh, and and that was ostensibly what a lot of people were doing. And there were definitely like some amazing games writers who were completely breaking the mold and or showcasing what Dungeons and Dragons should have been. And this is like one of the amazing things about like uh, the role playing community that I grew up with in Sydney in the '90s is that there were there was so much experimentation. There were so many uh, writers. Who were really experimenting with stories and were trying to write these very cinematic games uh, from, you know, for, for either five people or four people or 100 people when we were doing like full open freeforms, these very cinematic games where stories needed to start and finish. Within, um, by the time I was there, like the convention was to run a three to four hour game. And that's, that, that's what you did. You played that three to four hour game. There were some people who ran legacy games where you would come back like convention after convention and just like dovetail each game and each party. Like you would always finish at a certain point and then you'd come back and play on. Um, and then there were some people who ran endless murder dungeons. Uh, a guy <laughs> called Salvatore Conte. No, us, uh, sorry, a guy who runs Die With Honor. Sal has been doing it for, I think, 30 years plus years now, uh, and there are still people, and he's just got these huge murder maids that he's made up and defined, and there are people who still come to conventions today, and um, they will come in, and they'll play all nine sessions of a convention at his table playing the same murder maze. Um and, and it's crazy, and that's what they do, but yeah. Um, yeah, so, sorry, I think I got railroaded again, but when I <laughs>
0: That's, that's, this is we just uh, we just go on tangents. It's fine. We're, oh we're yeah, yeah. No, no. We're, we're the, good. All, all right. right, I'm
1: there. I'm there. I've got it. I've got it. Okay. So, all right. So when I was, I'm back. So when I, I was looking at these people locked in these worlds playing this game, and I'm like, why the why the hell are people doing this when like there are systems that are much? I was right in the middle of my my on like immersion yeah. at that point. Like with my, 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 my thief character running around, building undersea bases, getting shot in the head and stuff like that when I screwed up. And then it wasn't until 5th edition came out, um, and not even after 5th edition, but sometime after 5th edition it had come out, um, and some friends of mine were like, oh, we want to play a game together and it was a particular group of people who I was doing live-action role-play with at the time. So we were, like, running around with foam weapons, you know, hitting each other in the head, that kind of stuff. And not, like, not like the swordcraft kind of stuff. This is, like, classic, like... Um... Classic RPG stuff, where you know you you you've got a group of people. You've got like 20, 30 people, and five people at the adventuring party. One person's playing the GM, so you've got reality overlay, and then everyone else plays out the roles of the monsters. And then you rotate like your NPCs and monsters through an environment. So this is the kind of stuff that they were doing in the early '80s. Labyrinth in England it was the big one that started this phenomenon, the sort of live this style of live action phenomenon. And they're crazy. If you get a chance to look up Labyrinth. They run like full on dungeons and you can go into. This is like wow, in England, like that you can go cave into cave complexes
0: and, and things you can go and castles, yes, obviously.
1: Yes, yes, yes. And they do fully immersive. And they were doing this like in the 80s. This is like, yeah. <laughs> this is, we're really, we're really catching up uh, to a lot of this stuff these days. But anyway, They, always, they um, always
0: break the mold when it comes to the British stuff, when it comes to um, to tabletop and geeky games. And, like, well, you know, on, when, when you've got
1: long, long winters, long winters yeah. stuck inside. What are no. you going to do? You don't want to be outside. you got to live inside of your own mind. True. Um, uh, so, yeah, I came back to me. A group of friends were like, oh, I want to I play 5th edition Dungeons & Dragons, uh, and I want to play this setting. Um, and it was the Planescape Ravonica setting. Well, not the Ravonica yeah. setting. It was the horror. I can't really remember the name of it now, but it was like the very uh, Castlevania-inspired. Oh, yeah, the very, Ravenloft,
0: um, the whole gothic. Uh... Yeah,
1: yeah. Yeah, it was, it was that that someone so and i it's it's a really good module it's really very well written i can't remember the name of it it's independently written um but it was very well produced very high production value um and it was very well put together and i just like ran it off the bat for my friends um and i really liked the world and i changed it a bunch Uh, but that was my first time coming into dungeons and dragons fifth edition and my first time really running a dungeons and dragons game in my entire like life (laughs) (laughs) Which is <laughs> kind of like crazy, considering how long I've been running games for. Um, but then it was like going down that rabbit hole that brought me into what is Dungeons and Dragons Fifth Edition in the modern age, and also made me aware of the fact that uh, the internet had come to maturity, and we were finally seeing like a massive renaissance in just tabletop gaming. Because obviously, when I was a kid, I wanted to make money. In gaming, that's all I wanted to do with my life was run and write and play role-playing games. Um, but there was, there was never a way to do that professionally, or at least I in Australia, in Sydney, at that point in my life, could not find a way to do that. Um, no, the
0: internet has just opened up a door for everybody who's had thoughts like that. Because it does become mm. a global market rather than limited to, if you're in Sydney, yeah. the local game stores. It's like that's the only place you might be able to sell a self-published module if you don't have access to the internet.
1: Yeah. And on, on that note, when I first uh, – so I normally uh, – I've been working in events management for a while. And I set up a, a gaming club recently so in, I guess – we started it a long time ago. And it was mostly just the fact that I had friends around every Sunday to play games. And then eventually that evolved into, I had a larger space to do that in because I was running a venue at the time and then eventually grew into a pretty big club that eventually became what is now exiles gaming club. Uh, I since turned it into a not for profit organization and handed it over to a committee. Um, but, you know, it was like, that was my, first step into the internet and then I moved on to sort of working in venue spaces, just generally like hosting and running events. Um, And then when the pandemic came along, obviously all that shut down. uh, And then I was like, well, what marketable online skill do I actually have? And I tried just doing illustrations for a while and trying to like just pick up some commissions, but it's actually, I found it was quite difficult. coming into a world like there as an illustrator, like, or any artist, it takes time to build up a client base and, you know, be that online presence to get that turning over. Um, and I was definitely getting some commissions and like working with people on some stuff. And, you know, I was able to turn over a bunch of money doing that, but it, I was, didn't, I still had spare time around doing that. And I'm like, what else can I do? I'm desperate for money. I got nothing. Um, and I sort of was, when I'm going to look at Roll20, what the hell is this thing? What is this, this online running role-playing games? Um, and I'd been running the, we have been running the Tabletop Dynasty's YouTube channel for about a year at that point. Um, and I decided that I would just like try and actually make some cash like running online for people in the States. And yeah. That was actually how I paid my bills for the first half of this year. (laughs) And just finding those people.
0: There's a a call for it. There's a need for it now, I think. Because like you were saying with the the English being stuck inside all winter, that's kind of what the world's been like this year. We've all been stuck inside for three, four months. Mm -hmm. And it's just our minds working again.
1: Yeah. And a cross between kind of having one of the most accessible one of the most accessible versions of Dungeons and Dragons, because, like, let's face it, Dungeons yeah. and Dragons was still huge in the eighties and the seventies. Oh, yeah. It was a massive phenomenon, mm-hmm. and when it hit the world, it was it hit fad status, right? Mm-hmm. But now we're it also encountered like the massive Christian right, yes. um, and the whole had a huge panic, yeah. yeah. As soon as that, I mean, look, D and D's fate was sealed in the same way that EC Comics had their fate sealed. So in EC Comics, the the great image that sunk them in the courts of law during the the trials was the the needle sort of like coming into the eyeball that that image of the woman screaming and the syringe from the mad doctor sort of like just going into the eyeball and that was the thing that yeah. that was the the iconic image that sunk EC comics and in turn all horror comics and created the comics code that then mm-hmm destroyed like a lot of what you could do in comics for a long time thereafter. And this it was a terrible thing because like EC Comics and uh, had created this convention where people weren't just doing uh, they weren't just doing these amazing and crazy and exploitational horror comics, but there were a forum where real comic art could flourish and some of the most influential works of comic art in the 20th century or came out of that brief period of time um, in, the, in the 30s when these amazing comics were being produced. And that same mechanism that felt completely confident in shutting down comics came to bear in the 1970s as soon as the D&D Guide to the Occult came out, which was just a plain black cover with a giant red pentagram on the front of it. It's like, boom, fate sealed, done, and dusted, yeah. over. Tom Hanks, play this character, to this movie. <laughs> you're fucking done, done and dusted. Uh, and and now we're in a point where they're they very much know how to clean up their image. There's a lot of champions for diversity out there. D and D or Dungeons and Dragons and Wizards of the Coast is trying to do that. Obviously, Critical Roles coming along and really pushing that agenda. Mm-hmm. Um, it's funny though. It's funny that everyone's like, "Oh, Christians bad. Christians bad." Because there, there's one thing I got to say for Christians, at least in Sydney, is that during the Because conventions have been running since the 80s. The conventions that run in Sydney today, it's not the same conventions, but conventions have been, apart from two very dark years, uh, been continuously running in Sydney since the 70s. -hmm. And they've been reasonably healthy and reasonably evolutional. And they're always pushing to sort of like change and diversify and sort of expand. Um, They're definitely not in the heyday they were in the 90s when I came into them. Um, but there was a period in the 70s and 80s um, when all this was going on and there was a small group of very passionate people who still, who still to this day run games at conventions who fought very very hard to push through the to push through the the doubt and the shit and all of the naysaying and shit mm-hmm. Was going on. And that was the Christian Role Playing Game Association. Right. So, as much as Christianity and like the the far Christian right did a disservice to to gaming in that period of time, like there was this one group of people who worked very hard to to lobby other groups to get in with communities and say, "Hey, no, this is we're Christians. We play games. We're not Satanists. Here are all the reasons." I think they pioneered uh, the. The, the Christian overlay, which is where you say, oh, look, whatever system you're playing, you know, all these gods and demons and devils exist. But on top of all of that is one true God, right? Yeah. And that's, that, that's, that's the vision. Um,
0: yeah, because it fits into that idea very well. I mean, that's kind of what Tolkien yeah. was doing, that there is still this one true God that sees over all the stuff that's going on, even mm. when there's evil in the world. I am realising we we're running mm-hmm. a bit short on time, so oh, could, okay, cool. we, could, we could keep talking <laughs> all afternoon, honestly. I mean, we could get back into comics. We could talk about a, just a, a spark, a Baron Munchausen role-playing game.
1: Oh, let me you know, so let about, me quickly conclude that point before we finish up. We'll yeah, yeah, yeah. Really conclude yeah. that point, which is I think we're in an amazing spot right now where we're seeing the fad status of Dungeons & Dragons coming back into the social consciousness um, but without the incredible bank of naysayers and yeah. like that Christian right to knock it down, I think that's 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 making it crazy and exploding the industry. And even 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 five years ago, like the the gaming industry as a whole, role playing, board gaming, collecting card games, um, as a whole, finally started to eclipse like the computer games industry and the amount of money that it was turning over annually just globally. Yeah. This is. Um, I remember that because I was at CanCon one year. I was actually there for a wargaming convention of all things. Um, again, the plastic crack, and yes. uh, and SB or ABC News or Channel Nine News was there and were doing a story on it. And I'm like, "What are you covering? Why are you going around to all these like sweaty white men <laughs> playing wargames at this table?" And they explained it, and they just, "Oh yeah, we're doing a story because of the." We, we just found out it's a scoop. The 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 business is booming. Yeah, crazy. All right, cool. Now your I'm conclusion.
0: Well, I was going to say, do you <laughs> want to, um, to? we've really just been talking about the industry and about about the concepts and the, the theories behind gaming, but we haven't really delved into what Goblins of Zarth is about and what actually happens ah. in the adventure, which I'd love to hear from you. And I wanted to get to that before right. we wrapped up. So um, in your uh, those, words, uh, since
1: those since, are I, two uh, very big questions, so I'd like to. I'd like, like to ask, uh, what, what are you more interested in? Are you more interested in what Goblins is about or what happens in the adventure? Or do you let's want me go, to summarise both of them as quickly as possible?
0: <laughs> let's go with what happens in the adventure because I know it was run with the Dungeons & Distancing thing, so some of the listeners may have already experienced it. They might have gotten to play it in it. But um, for people who haven't and would like to just pick it up as that, that beer and pretzels game of, hey, what's going to happen? Yeah. Next, what can I expect?
1: Uh, look, what to expect is probably what you should throw out the window uh, it 's not a game of expectations. it is an entirely unique world. It is not while it is a silly mad cup adventure in a lot of ways, it takes a lot of everything that i 've been talking about with you right now for the last like period of time and jams it all in there. It has realistic cause and effect. It has justifications for its existences. Uh, the pitch is you will jump into a fully immersive world uh, that is based on various uh, historical empires from throughout the history of the human race, um, both good and bad, and then takes a whole bunch of um, unique elements that have leaked straight out of my brain onto the page um, to create unique and interesting rituals. Because one of the things that I like to do in a world is justify how societies could exist how, how does a goblin society exist? What does it mean to be in a goblin society I, and also then taking that element and being like, hey it's not just it's not just trying to mechanically define it all. I want you to live it. I want you to breathe it. I want you to be there in this world that I've created that takes a lot of satire from the world that we exist and our history the world we exist in and our history and brings it together in a madcap adventure that leads you through all echelons of life in the capital city of the greatest goblin empire ever to exist and of course in creating that empire I've tried to think what mechanisms what beliefs what structures need to exist to make this, this society of, essentially, let, let's go to the old tropes of, uh, <clears throat> of alignments of, you know, of chaotic, neutral individuals work. Yeah. How does it actually move forward? How does what is it the
0: ecosystem of this world? How is this city operating if everyone is acting out of their own best interests? <laughs>
1: And the players don't need to know all of that intimately, but they can still benefit from it. And the module is presented in such a way that it gently leads the players... Well, when I say gently, you know... <laughs> it's about to, But it leads the players through from the lowest levels of goblin society to the upper levels of goblin society in an adventure where... which is more of a sandbox-style adventure where only the very beginning part early part of the game are you're going from point A to point B and then very early in the first parts of the game you're being presented with problems that you need to solve um, with the knowledges that you have and then you start interfacing with the things around you and through action you explore the world. Uh, so I've tried to make it so that in no way does it become very cut and dried there are definitely some aspects of it as you have to do with a box game to push the narrative forwards uh which there so there are some parts that obviously have to you have to hit milestones and come to conclusions but at the same point i've structured the game in such a way so that if you don't hit those milestones you don't hit those conclusions then there are ways that the game can continue um and in some cases and this is like gm only information spoilers (laughs) If your players completely fail or die in their attempt, the antagonists in any given part of the game can actually pick up the baton from the players as they die and then continue on. So the players, if they lose their characters, can continue on as the people they're trying to fight. Um because the game is structured in such a way. And that's all written into the module. And also written into the module, because it is a whole new world, this is the benefit of this particular Goblins of Zath game, is that in order to make it happen, I've had to define the world to a certain degree. So this is like a teaser for a, a world book, which uh, is something that is coming. Uh, we're going to start Kickstarter for that um, inside of... Well, I'm not sure when this is coming out, but inside of the next couple and before the end of 2020, there'll be a Kickstarter up for the world book. So if you really love these games as a taster, like get in, play the games, you enjoy them, then keep an eye out because that Kickstarter is going to start up. And then by mid next year, you can jump into the full campaign and the full or a full campaign in the world. But in these modules in order to make this world work, I've defined so much of that information already. So there's a lot. It's ready to go. There's so much scope in this. I've I've obviously put a lot of love in it. I really enjoyed it. Um, I developed it. came out of the pandemic because I developed this setting. Even though it's been kicking around in my head for a long time, I really developed this setting, playing with players in the States online, uh, going, well, what am I going to run for these people? What's going to be different (laughs) and new And people are going to want to play? I'm going to run a Goblin setting um and then of course when it i was doing it for the dungeons and distancing thing um it was uh i, I said to john you know i could i could do i could do like some generic and i could do you know some some call of cthulhu or yeah. something else uh, or hey i've been working on this goblins world for a while and john from arcanicon was just like it's got to be the goblins yeah. You know, let's let's do it. That sounds great. You've got to do that. And I'm like, okay, well, you know, I'm not going to complain. Um, yeah. It's something that hasn't... Uh, and, well,
0: I don't think anyone's really done a, a Goblin's World before. Uh, well, I a mean, Goblin's was, Adventures, uh, it, but... I don't Goblin think it's, Quest
1: was the big one that yeah. sticks into my mind, which is done by... Um, it, was, it was a guy called... He also wrote, uh, like, Honey Heist. Um, yes and stuff like that. Uh, I, I met him. He actually he came to our club a long time ago. Um, I can't remember his name. I'm terribly sorry.
0: That's right. We'll look up Honey I, Heist and we'll find Goblin Quest as well. Like yeah,
1: it. yeah, yeah. You'll find Goblin Quest. Um, yeah. So I know that uh, the writer, that writer, who's quite well known now, um, when they were living in Sydney with their partner for a while, they were playtesting a lot of their stuff um, through, uh, through Exiles Gaming Club, which is the club that I set up. Many years ago. Well, when I say I set up, it was a community that built it. I facilitated it and made it happen. And now it is its own unique creature um, that is, you know, aside from who I am. Uh, but, yeah, yeah, they were, they were there. They were testing that kind of stuff. Um, but it was, again, it was very different. And I th- think to, to my understanding of what Goblins is, because for me, uh, when I was like, I think I was like seven years old and I was walking to one those old bulk buy bookshops. Um, I think we were actually in Melbourne on a trip, a very rare occasion. We had a friend living there at the time. And so we were staying with them. And uh, it was one of these bulk buy bookshops that was just uh, on the, the main strip in the city there. And I walked in and I saw this front cover to the first edition of the Goblins of Labyrinth book. Um uh which was or Goblins of the Labyrinth. Yeah. Or Goblins of the Labyrinth, which is the Brian Froud, uh, Terry Jones book. So Brian Froud obviously, you know, a legend, did all of the designs for Dark Crystal and and stuff like that. But Terry Jones like is amazing in their own right, like as a his like R.I.P. Um, but an amazing, amazing. Well, it was an amazing children's book writer, historian, like a lot of the Python team were, yeah. um, and just a story writer. And the the way that he embellished the illustrations that were created by Froud in that book was something so different to even. Like, and Labyrinth was great. Like there was, it was yeah. a fun film to watch. And it was a very immersive setting to be involved in because you could see all of the elements of this goblin society that started to exist there. And it felt like, you know, twilight of goblin society. You sort of Mm. got a glimpse of it. But in in the Goblins of the Labyrinth book, you had this like expanded world um, that was there and a very strong aesthetic that came through. And that's that's probably one of my strongest influences in creating this world is trying to take that level of absurdity, bring it into this environment and creating that sort of labyrinthine entity. And of course, since since I read it, like I didn't go back and reread that book when I was writing the setting because I didn't want it to be too much like that. I'm just like I, I yeah. want yeah, to and
0: look
1: uh, yeah and look I'm not gonna pretend that there's not a lot of influences because, as especially as an artist, like as an illustrator, um, to pick up those kinds of designs, in particular, like, the designs like from the Dark Crystal, designs from like Labyrinth, and there are lots of other things that influenced my world as well, like uh, amazing comics from the the '70s and '80s, um, like like Frizetta. Like if you if you look at, I, I guess if you. My two biggest influences for the art style that is most prevalent in the illustrations that exist in this book are probably if you took Brian Froud and Frank Rosetta and, like, mashed them together, that's, that's pretty much the feel for most of the illustrations.
0: That's an interesting combination. Okay, cool. I like it. i went it. Oh. All right, well, Herbert, thank you so much for coming on and talking to me today. Uh, like I said, we could, if we started going to comics, we'd be here, for probably a week, honestly, <laughs> it's been a while since I've really got to delve into comics. Where can people find you? Where can people find Goblins of Zarth? I hey,
1: around. well, look, uh, I'm obviously going to be like totally under the thumb for the next very short period of time uh, getting this publication out, but you will be able to go to the Quest Suppliers, find the Goblins of Zarth um, publication there. Jump online, grab yourself a copy. Um, shortly after that, the Kickstarter is going to come out. If you pay attention to both. Quest suppliers, who we're going to be working closely with going forwards, um, and tabletop dynasties you know, the usual thing, like, subscribe, hit the bell button so you can stay mm-hmm. abreast of all future releases uh, on YouTube. Uh, we're going to be starting some pretty exciting projects coming out on Twitch. We finally got, like, a streaming set up uh, in our studio, which is very exciting. Cause we finally got the NBN. Welcome to, like, <laughs> backwater Australian internet. We got the NB fucking N. Um So we're finally online. We're going to be doing some uh, pretty cool stuff, starting some semi-regular Wednesday streams and some semi-regular Sunday streams going forward. So even if you are internationally you should be able to pick up some live. Um, and we're going back to our regular releases now that this initial Goblins of Zarth craziness is out of the way on the YouTube channel. So yeah, that's where you'll find me and all of my stuff. Tabletop Dynasties. WWD. Also, if you're interested in the art or any of the artwork that you're seeing around, uh, you can follow uh, me on Cephalopede, which is on Instagram. Obviously, Tabletop Dynasties also has their own social media. You'll be able to find them through all those resources. Um, yeah, hit me up and cool. send messages and talk to me about all this stuff. I obviously yeah. love talking. I'm a games master. <laughs>
0: <laughs> that's, that's why people become games masters, I think, so they can just do uh-huh. the monologues. Uh-huh. And um, uh-huh. the really only problem is when you start talking to your other NPCs, uh, as uh-huh. and the players are just sitting and uh-huh. going, great. I'm glad you're having a conversation because I'm just watching. Uh-huh. But that leads me to the last point: that uh, could you say farewell to our listeners as perhaps one of the goblins, um, one of the more iconic goblins that you've you've run from Zarth, or just a character maybe your thief from Shadowrun that you'd um, that you mentioned earlier?
1: The thing with goblins of Zarth is it's one giant seething mass of goblin consciousnesses all writhing together. It's not just me. It's not just the NPCs. It's really the little goblin inside of all of us. So instead of saying goodbye in my favorite goblin's voice, I'm going to reach out to you and say, reach inside of yourself. And we're not saying goodbye. We're asking you to go deep, deep inside and say hello a little goblin that lives inside of you.
0: Again, I want to thank Herbert for coming on the podcast and if you have been interested in what he's got to say, uh, check out Goblins of Zarth on the Quest Suppliers. Uh, that's the quest suppliers, or one word, dot com au. Uh, you can find a couple of other modules over there as well, and some great stuff um, that you can pick up some gaming products there too. If you could share us with your friends, if you've got people who are into Dungeons and Dragons and hearing about other people's characters, this would be the best place to, to find out about that. Send them over here. We're on Spotify and SoundCloud and up Podcasts and Google Podcasts, pretty much anywhere podcasts are found. You can leave us a review on any of those services as well if they allow it. You can find the podcast on Twitter at Tell Me Your D&D or on Instagram and Facebook at Tell Me About Your D&D. You can also find me on my other podcast of Dyson DMs, which is also hosted on SoundCloud. Art for the podcast is done by Tori Tedeschi, and music is by Ploddington Bear. Until next time, stay safe, everyone. May all your hits be crits.